Welcome to None Dare Call It Ordinary, a podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs found at the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the papal and Pentecostal Brent. Oh, actually, that's insulting to me as a Baptist, so... It's... I I went for both. (laughs) I went for both extremes on the opposite of your... Of your Christian heritage. I thought yes. that, you know, worked well with our episode today. That's right. All right. So what's the what's the holiday today? Well, today, the day we're recording, which is uh, Sunday the 6th, is the Feast of the Epiphany. Ooh, what is that? That's basically when the Magi figured out Jesus was around. Oh, okay. So we figured out, oh, we made, you know, Epiphany, we figured out, okay, cool, Jesus is back. We can all party. Nice. But tomorrow, which for you listening, if you're listening to it, the day it comes out, which you should be, <laughs> it'll be Eastern Orthodox Christmas on the 7th. Very good. And it's very appropriate because today we're starting a new series on Sedevacantism, which is the belief that there hasn't been a pope since the death of Pope John the Twenty-Third on June 3rd, 1963, or even earlier with the death of Pope Pius the Twelfth. On October 9th, 1958. Uh. It's a long time without a pope. Yeah. It's kind of unfortunate. And it's going to be a lot... Because you might... I thought there was a pope. Yes. Pope I, Francis hanging out. I That's guess. what I thought. Yeah. But it turns out we've been wrong this whole time. <laughs> decades of error. And so to explain all this stuff, you know, we'll, we're going to start covering some historical background, and then we're also going to cover the godfather of Sedevacantism, Marcel Lefebvre, and his organization, the Society of St. Pius the tenth. All right, so let's start with the name of this doctrine itself, Sedevacantism. Where does this come from? It comes from the Latin Sedevacante, meaning the seat is vacant. And a little fun fact, which I'm telling you because I spent a long time figuring it out, you might have heard the term the Holy See. I don't exactly know. It's what we call the Pope and the whole shebang. It's also like a um, bad thing to say to somebody if they have like holes in their retina. Like, don't say that to people. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, it's not very nice. Oh, man, I'm sorry, sir. You've been diagnosed with a holy see. Um, it is permanent and contagious. Right. Don't look at anyone or they will come to experience this disease as well. But no, we're talking about the Pope. He's called the Holy See. And this actually comes from the Latin sede. And so in the same as sede vacante, the seat is vacant. And C is actually the Middle English descendant of sede. Oh. And, you know, if we're going to speak English in the church, we're going to keep it in the Middle Ages. Yeah. You know, we want to keep to the tradition. <laughs> so this term sede vacante is normally reserved for the period between the death or resignation of a Pope and the election of a new Pope. Yeah, basically when time and space stop. Yep, exactly. That's why we've never experienced this ever. <laughs> is, you know, just time stops and it's just right on with the new pope. <laughs> now, since the middle of the 19th century, the Sede Vacante periods have lasted only two to three weeks. Um, in the Middle Ages, there were some pretty intense ones that lasted over two years. The longest period being two years and ten months between the death of Pope Clement IV on November 29th, 1268, and the election of Pope Gregory X on September 1st, 1271. Hmm. Now, that's official, of course, because the real Sede Vicante is, at best right now, 55 years, 7 months, and 6 days. <laughs> that's an incredible record to beat. I'm sorry, Clement. You know, that's... You're almost 3 years. That's kind of pathetic, frankly. <laughs> 
Another kind of fun fact about just the Sede Vacante as it's normally understood is that since the establishment of the Vatican city-state in 1929, the Vatican Post Office puts out special Sede Vacante postage stamps, (laughs) which was just a wonderful thing to find out. If you're familiar with how postage used to work in the United States, at least, where, because now we have the forever stamps were spoiled, but it used to be that stamps had a regular value and you had to keep upgrading them. Yeah. Um, it was even worse for the Vatican because you would think, well, the Sede Vacante periods are usually two to three weeks, but the stamps themselves lasted a lot shorter than that. So <laughs> when it, it's totally a scam, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's on the level of the, uh, indulgences, yeah. you know, it's, I mean, we need, we really need, we need a new reformation to deal with the Vatican postage stamp schism as I, as I prefer to call it. But so after Paul the sixth died on a, August 6, 1978, the Sede Vacante stamps were valid for four days. Jeez. <laughs> and I wonder if it's like, because again, so, you know, when the stamps would go from like 40 cents to 42 cents, yeah. you had to buy those stupid two cent stamps to kind of like, you know, to get the right postage. So I wonder if they have an equivalent where <laughs> there's a stamp that you could just cover the Vacante part, yeah. you know, just so you don't, you how, what am I going to do? Throw away all these stamps? Yeah. Either way, you know you're going to be waiting in a massive line for the one Vatican, you know, postal worker to get back from his lunch to open that little tiny wooden mm. window and begrudgingly start helping <laughs> people. You know it is. Man, they're <laughs> the post office everywhere yeah. isn't working right. It's, it's horrible. Oh, man, I'm I'm telling you, we're gonna get this post office schism going. It's gonna be, <laughs> it's what we gotta do. All right, so that's normally what sede vacante means. So what's up with these folks thinking there's no pope? Seems like we got a pope. We got Pope Francis. People talk about him all the time. He's, you know, running around doing stuff. It all goes back to the Second Vatican Council, commonly called Vatican II. Here's the really short story, which we're going to talk about in later episodes. Vatican II, it was an ecumenical council. Uh, There have been 21 of these in the history of the church. Um, Ecumenical just means church-wide rather than local. And the first was the Council of Nicaea way back in 325, long time ago. Which that's one thing I, it's hard for me to keep in my head is how long the Catholic Church has been going on. Mm-hmm. It's a long time, 2,000 yeah. years. It's pretty, it's that's staying power. It's pretty good. Yeah. So generally, so ecumenical councils, what they are, they bring together bishops mostly to make decisions about doctrine for the whole church. So the, the Council of Nicaea, for example, there were some... I don't know the specifics, but there were some debates about, you know, the relationship between the Trinity and the individual parts of the Trinity and people were getting real mad about it. And so they're like, all right, we're going to have a council, get everyone together. We're going to agree and be like, this is, as a friend of mine used to say, this is the company line about (laughs) stuff. So that's kind of what these councils are about. Think of them as like the Supreme Court of Catholicism, but with even better robes. (laughs) That's basically what these councils right. are about. And no one going on and on about his love for calendars and beer. So that's not oh, usually. Yeah, no. that's <laughs> there might be sins involved. They're not those <laughs> sins. And the, so the basic Sede Vacantist belief is that at this particular ecumenical council, they made some bad choices. So bad that the people who made them were heretics. They actually were no longer Catholics. A heretic can't be Pope. So... All the people who are "quote unquote" elected pope are not popes. That's the super basic story, and we're going to get into what they think is wrong with Vatican II, yada yada yada. But first, let's get into what this whole thing was and where it started. So, Vatican II was convoked 
by Pope John XXIII, who announced his intention to do so only three months after his election on January 25th, 1959, which is pretty, he's hit the ground running. <laughs> he's not wasting yeah, any he's time. he's like the Michael Jordan of Popes, John, uh, Pope Michael, John Michael Jordan of Popes, absolutely, just not <laughs> body-wise. He was quite a rotund man, so probably didn't have the fadeaway of Michael right. Jordan. He had a theological fadeaway, right. I guess you could call it. That's really, you know, that's his, that's his skill. And John 23rd was a bit of a change. Uh, so Pius Twelfth, as the name suggests, was very solemn, very kind of a serious character, where John 23 was this bigger dude, kind of, you know, more lighthearted. A couple of points about this is the first picture of him that was reprinted when he was elected featured him holding a cigarette. <laughs> Can you believe it's smoking? Whoa. Whoa, that is crazy. And he was described as spontaneous and even like to tell jokes. Man, joking Pope. (laughs) And I, for your benefit and for your edification, I found some of these Pope John 23rd jokes. So here, I'm going to give you three of them. First, uh, John the 23rd was asked by a reporter how many people work at the Vatican. His response, about half of them. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh. Ooh, zinger. Zing one. Another one, another example of this is a, a cardinal complained to him that there was a rise in Vatican salaries, and it meant that a particular usher earned as much as the cardinal. The Pope remarked, that usher has ten children. I hope the cardinal doesn't. Oh, 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 oh just <laughs> oh. zingers all day. All day zingers. It's amazing. This guy didn't stop. And, and the last one that I thought was choice, this is actually just an entire quote. It often happens that I wake up at night and begin to think about the serious problems afflicting the world, and I tell myself, I must talk to the Pope about it. Then the next day when I wake up, I remember that I'm the Pope. <laughs> it's a regular this is Sam more Kennison. dementia, I think, than, yeah. than humor, more though. Dementia. This is a little this is slightly concerning. Right. He's like the Sam Kennison of Popes here. The Sam Kennison of Popes. What a... <laughs> I never thought anyone would. That's a strange. No one's ever said that. No one has ever said that. But it's true. Yeah. It's still true. So Vatican II began preparations in May of 1959 with the Anti-Preparatory Commission, which sent a letter to every bishop asking what they thought should be discussed at Vatican II. Now, this is a great example of how Latin can make really stupid phrases sound way cooler. So... Anti-preparatory just means pre-preparatory, but if you call it the pre-preparatory commission, no one would take you seriously. Yeah, exactly. No one's responding to that letter. There's a really good example of this in logic. There's two argument forms. They're called modus ponens and modus tollens, which sound like super cool, but they literally translate as the mode that affirms by affirming and the mode that (laughs) denies by denying, which again, no one's taking you seriously. If that's what you call your thing. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> so the letter to the bishops that the anti-preparatory commission, remember the pre-preparatory commission sent out, said simply, The venerable pontiff wants to know the opinions or views and to obtain the suggestions and wishes of their excellencies, the bishops and prelates who are summoned by law, Canon 223, to take part in the ecumenical council. These suggestions, etc., will be most useful in preparing the topics to be discussed at the council. Now, you think this is a big deal, ecumenical council? There hasn't been one in about 100 years. Mm-hmm. You're really, you're raring to respond. Well, not exactly. So the letter, it went out to 2,598 recipients, 
and only 1,998 responded for a response rate of 77%. And I just, I imagine the kind of the bishops who didn't respond to this letter, you know, I just imagine their assistant or whatever, like, hey, Bishop, you got this letter? It's asking if you want, you know, suggestions for this new ecumenical council. And the bishop's just like, I don't care. You know, I'm too busy. I got this letter saying that the warranty on my Prius is expiring and I, I better, you know, re-up it. No, more like warranty on my Toyota Pius. Am I right? <laughs> oh, oh, man. Are you Pope John the 23rd? Yes, I am. Oh, That's the big reveal. Your excellency. <laughs> this podcast just reached a new level of sophistication and, and expertise. This is wonderful. Thank you, my son. So the responses ranged greatly in, in length. So the shortest was a simple six-line letter from the bishop the Bishop of Wollongong in Australia to 27 pages from the Cardinal Archbishop of Guadalajara, Mexico. And this just makes the people who didn't respond look even worse. <laughs> like all you had like a six line letter that, I mean, what's going to take you 10 minutes? It's like a tweet. Yeah. It's like a tweet. It's a, tw- it's a tweet. <laughs> you can't tweet when the Bishop asks, when the, when the Pope asks for a response, you can't send a simple tweet. <laughs> The key is what they should have done is sent this letter out so it got to people at three in the morning when they're using the bathroom. And I think they would have responded at that point. That's exactly right. So all these responses were printed after the council and totaled 5,000 pages in eight volumes. So just like when we, you know, when we discussed the Russia investigation, you know, just like those congressional committees, Catholics love them some documents. (laughs) So in addition to these responses from the bishops, if you add in responses from the congregations of the Roman Curia, which is the Roman Curia is basically like the administrative body of the Holy See. Uh, It's equivalent to like the executive branch of the U.S. government and the congregations are like the departments. So like some of them that put their input into the anti-preparatory commission included the Congregation of Rights and the Holy Office. Uh, was itself 400 pages. And then if you also add response from Catholic universities, the responses to the anti-preparatory letter total 12 volumes or roughly 7,500 pages. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, And there were a few themes that, you know, you could see. So a few talked about tightening up the status quo. Um, Another theme was the condemnation of modern evils, whether inside or outside the church. I just imagine... You know, someone getting a call, the modern evil is calling from inside the church. <laughs> and there's nothing more embarrassing than having an outdated evil. You know, no, you got to update it. Yeah. You got to update you know, that evil. Update the evil. <laughs> they also requested an explicit condemnation of communism. It's okay, though, if it's democratic communism. Yeah, that's that's fine. And then a few non-Western bishops even asked for modification or abrogation of celibacy for priests. Whoa. Yeah, they want to get it on. Too much. All right, now that the Vatican has pre-prepared, it's time to get down to the business of just preparing. It's preparing all the way down, really. Just yeah, it's really, preparing. they never actually get to the thing. <laughs> so uh, John the Twenty Third he set up 10 preparatory commissions to kind of comb through all, you know, these 7,500 pages of responses with the Central Preparatory Commission overseeing all of their work. Did someone just say C? Oh, oh, holy. yes, C. I'm doing some Pope jokes. Pope jokes, the C is seeing. <laughs> and actually, this is a good time to mention that we're going to do something a little new. We'll talk about it a little later, but we're actually going to, on our website, we're going to have a full list of all these preparatory commissions in 
a source page on the website, so you'll be able to kind of oh, see right, all yeah. those named out. And uh, we'll we'll get to that more later at the end of the episode. The goal of the 850 clerics who were working in these commissions was to take the responses they received from the anti-preparatory commission and produce documents to be submitted to the council for ratification. Like the anti-preparatory commission, the preparatory commissions generated a ton of documents totaling seven volumes. This is before the paper shredder was invented, obviously, right? Yeah, they and they were doing it old school. They weren't even... They weren't using the printing press. This is all written down. They right. had a bunch of scribes, you know, writing this down with their quill pens. The hand cramps. I can only imagine. Yes, I can't even imagine. And they're all, they're all were like They're all like Popeye, basically. Popeye arms. Pop, yeah. Oh, yeah. Built. Man, <laughs> the pontiff is swole. <laughs> Damn. All right, so let's, we've pre-prepared, we've prepared. Let's actually get to Vatican II already. Yeah. So one of our main sources has been the book What Happened at Vatican II by John W. O'Malley, which is actually really interesting. And it gives a lot of good history on Vatican II and kind of does like a blow-by-blow of what happened. And so here's a kind of nice intro. This is a quote from that book on page 23. The meetings were held in the nave of St. Peter's Basilica. Despite the huge proportions of that space, 2,500 square meters, it was barely sufficient to hold all the attendees. The nave was outfitted to provide 2,905 spaces, 102 for cardinals, 7 for patriarchs, 26 for the general secretariat of the council, 2,400 for bishops and archbishops, 200 for the periti, which are experts, basically, and 130 for observers and guests from the other churches. Wow. A lot of folks. Yeah. And you can already see observers and guests from other churches. This was a big... This on its own was a big deal. They had floor seats, unfortunately. But floor, cool. yeah, floor, you know, I mean, <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, it, they also, they didn't get the court seats. You know, yeah, that's, that's, true. that's really what you want. <laughs> there were a total of 7,500 people present in Rome due to Vatican II. During the four periods of the council, there were 10 public sessions to which were admitted as many people as were specially invited or managed to obtain tickets. Among these sessions were the opening ceremonies for each of the four periods. You know there were scalpers outside this council selling some hot tickets, making some good change. Yeah, that's what I did. (laughs) Or managed to obtain tickets. That seems like a bizarre... (laughs) Ticketmaster, you go through Ticketmaster. Yeah, you gotta go through, and you gotta pay the fees. I just imagine, (laughs) oh, you know, the Archbishop of Detroit wanted to go, but, you know, it's harder to get in than Hamilton, I imagine. It's just a bizarre... It's... It seems like a strange system of getting into yeah. an ecumenical council, as far as I can see. <laughs> there were 168 actual working sessions, officially known as general congregations, in which documents were presented, discussed, amended, and voted on. Then burned. Just kidding. Oh, what? No, actually, I do have a story. When I when I grew up, I was a, I was um, growing up in church. I remember vividly seeing this and I was in the pews and I guess the church I was in the small church had paid off their mortgage so they had this ceremony where they had that they brought it out in this little like metal offering plate they put it up and the pastor's like bring it to me deacons and they brought it to him (laughs) and they lit a match and they burned it and I just remember it getting a little out of control I was like this this could spread this is not good (laughs) this would be a whole other thing if this whole thing just went and then they burned down the church And then that would be the worst thing. <laughs> and that was the I only one that, that survived. So I think yep. that's a fairly common right, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, kind of people probably. burn their mortgages when when they paid that darn thing off. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, the idea of burning down the church because you go. burned the mortgage that you finally paid on the church. <laughs> that's the worst kind of irony I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, 
it's not good. So the working sessions began at 9 a.m. with Mass, which I should also mention. I don't know if I mentioned this today. Oh, yeah, you haven't. I went to Mass today in, in order nice. to prepare for this very episode. It's probably been 15 That's years awesome. since I've gone to Mass. I actually... My mom just found my official confirmation documents. I am, you know, I am the expert on this episode in virtue of <laughs> when I was That's 15 true, years old, I was confirmed to the Catholic Church, <laughs> um, and I've retained all that knowledge that I didn't have then just throughout the years. But our mass started at 10, which is way better than 9, I have to say. Yeah. So You know, the church I dro- uh, near me, I drove by it yesterday and looked at their mass. It was 6 a.m. 6 a.m.? Like, that is really ridiculous. I was like, wow. nope. I'll go some other time. <laughs> Too early. Yeah, that's a little... The sun so should be up. So how was that mass that you went to? What kind of... Uh, was it... Yeah, was it the old or new mass? It was definitely a newer mass. Um, oh, it was God. the... So, again, we're going to get into this these details later, but it was definitely the mass of the Novus Ordo, oh, which shit. is what Sede Vacantis call the quote-unquote Catholic Church that you all think <laughs> is real, but isn't. <laughs> Um, and the worst part, I, I, I hate to say this, this is really going to worry our more traditional Catholic listeners. There was a guitar involved. And again, oh, God, was it plugged in? Was this guitar acoustic or was it? Plugged it was acoustic. It was acoustic. So it wasn't. Okay. So it wasn't full on modernist. Like I can't even begin to imagine a plugged in guitar. No, don't even. I was well, so taken aback. plugged in and not distort if it was distorted too. Oh. <sighs> If it was clean, maybe that's they uh, didn't a little even better, but... sing the liturgy. It was just a, a solo. They just soloed oh, the Gregorian <laughs> chant. <laughs> and a wah wah pedal. It was. Oh, I tell you what, Literally. I I needed to call Pope wow. Michael right then and there. But I held yeah. strong. I held strong. <laughs> so anyway, back to Vatican II, quote unquote Vatican. Yeah. So a couple things about uh, Vatican II. It was fully mic'd. With this, yeah. <laughs> in the O'Malley book, he was really into this. <laughs> so Douglas Horton, who was one of the Protestant observers at the meetings, noted in his diary on October 23rd, 1962, for the council, the great pile of St. Peter's is skillfully wired for sound so that with microphones in strategic places, even a whispered note can be heard in the remotest part. Even the slightest of farts can be oh, heard. Oh, that was probably yeah, to their detriment. Was- I, that's the problem with really good, you know, audio is you get everything. Yes. The council was also super expensive, as you can imagine. So the new installations in St. Peter's, the laboratories, coffee bars, oh my furnishings God. for seating arrangements, and the purchase and installation of the public address system, all those microphones we were talking about, cost close to a million dollars, which in the 1960s was a lot of money. <laughs> Also, a little known fact, they were offering half off the coffee bar and communion wafers with locks and capers. Ooh, I like so, that. Actually, I wonder if, um, you know, there's like a speakeasy in there. You can go in there and find... <laughs> you just open a secret like, door, oh. just... Bah, bah, da, 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 bah, da, it's da, like, oh, it's bah. the confessional booth. Oh, right. <laughs> and it's called the confessional? Man. <laughs> Best speakeasy ever. All right, so... That's kind of the rough historic. It was like 62 to 65 is when the actual council happened. So what were the big changes that were brought about that got Sedevacantus so riled up? So the official output of Vatican II was 16 documents, four constitutions, nine decrees, and three declarations. And these are roughly ordered by importance, more or less. You know, it's kind of like... 
the U.S. Constitution versus federal law versus state law, kind of. I mean, in terms of, you know, authority. And again, we'll have a complete list um, on our source page, um, which we'll, we'll show you. Um, but here are some of the highlights in all of these documents. The biggest change was to the mass. So kind of what I was joking about earlier is that up until then, the typical mass was a Latin mass. The rough highlights of this are you've probably, you can YouTube this and find examples of the Latin mass. It's very solemn. You know, it's no guitars at all. You fate the pre the priests face away from the congregation. It's all in Latin, for example, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And so the biggest change that kind of, you know, lay Catholics saw were the changes to the mass. So the biggest one was the increased use of vernacular in the mass, uh, especially so vernacular, just the language that, you know, people naturally speak and more about getting people involved in the mass kind of active participation in the mass. So the worry was that people were kind of just going and like watching a show and they wanted everybody to be kind of involved in the whole process. Um, which was part of the reasoning for using the vernacular. And it should be noted that the Vatican II didn't require the guitars. It also doesn't require ugly buildings. Well, that'll be important <laughs> later. It doesn't actually say you need those things Damn. in Vatican II. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Um, and really, it's kind of interesting. I found an interesting article, which again will be on the source page, kind of about there's a caricature. It's really the Sede Vacantis are working with a caricature. Of, of the changes to the mass, the caricature being, oh, it's a bunch of hippies singing hymns with guitars and, you know, in really ugly buildings facing the congregation and all this kind of stuff, which Vatican II itself didn't really, it didn't require that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was still. That's, that's more, that's more um, Pentecostal. So. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> Those Pentecostal Catholics ruining everything. Those are all my friends growing up were very. Going, they were all Pentecostal, and they were, they had like hippie youth pastors oh, playing man. guitars. Like, come on, Jesus freaks! Yeah, totally. So, two of the other big changes with Vatican II was um, it promoted interfaith dialogue, you know, as opposed to shunning other religions and other non-Catholic <sighs> Christians. So, you know, the Jews, for oh, example, wow. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Protestants. It was this idea of you know we need to promote dialogue between these groups and the Catholic Church. Um, instead of kind of beating our fists on the table saying, look, we're the one true church. Like, we still are the one true church, but we're not yeah. going to be such pricks about it. And then they also promoted religious liberty and not just for Catholics. They said, you know, a basic mm-hmm. tenet is, you know, everyone should be free to practice the religion they like. Now, that all sounds fairly benign, I think. I, I think the one thing that interested me about this whole topic was this doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But for a lot of people, it's a real big deal. And one person in particular, Marcel Lefay, woo, did not like what was going on. I think Brent has more about this guy. So, Marcel Francois Marie Joseph Lefebvre. Man, good name. He's, yeah, thanks. It's a long name. Yeah, it's so many names. 1905 to 1991. Also, I should mention this is a first in None Dare Call It Ordinary History. We looked up how to pronounce this man's name. We're trying to be accurate here. First time. First time ever. We should have done yes. it a long time ago. I know. We went, I, we went through an entire Russian series. <laughs> we were just winging it. We were just winging that whole thing. But now, you know, we're allies with the French, so we decided That's to right. give them the benefit of the doubt. 
All right. So he's a, a French Roman Catholic archbishop ordained as a diocesan priest in 1929 and taught at a seminary in Gabon in 1932. In 1947, he was appointed vicar apostolic of Dakar, Senegal, and then the next year as the apostolic delegate for West Africa. So quite a CV on this guy, huh? Yeah, he's doing a lot of work. It seems he's got a pretty good pace. (laughs) That's right. He was elected superior general. And that, by the way, is a general without quotation marks around it. So, you know, it's not a tweet from the president, our president. Um, So anyway, (laughs) a superior general of the Holy See, (laughs) not the Holy See, of the Holy Ghost Fathers. Ooh, spooky. Where he was picked to participate in the preparation and drafting of documents for the upcoming Second Vatican Council, which is confusing because I thought it was Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, not Father, Son, and Holy Ghost Fathers. I... I don't know. I guess that's just his name. Yeah, it should have been the Holy Ghost Father Sons. Right. Just get it all in there. That's more like it. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, um, so he was in, I don't remember which one, but he was in one of the preparatory commissions. He was part of the 850 clerics who were part of that deal. Yes. He was a major leader of the conservative bloc during this council. That's Um, one thing that we like didn't get into really um, is the kind of drama in the in the council yeah you know we have these documents and they're kind of the official documents but a lot of them kind of got passed by the skin of their teeth (laughs) and there were a lot of opposition to a lot of this stuff and so he was a big part of that opposition definitely um later lefebvre would become a leader in opposing certain changes within the church associated with the council and resign resigned from his leadership role of the Holy Ghost Fathers in 1968 because of his opposition. You don't just leave the Holy Ghost Fathers. That is a sweet gig. Right. That's true. We'll go into more detail of this stuff a little later. But anyway, so in 1970, Lefebvre founded the Society of St. Pius X, SSPX, as it's called, as a small group That's of- not, not to be confused with South by Southwest. That's right. a different- Or MXPX, the Christian band. Yeah, oh, or no effects, <laughs> a not no effects. Christian yeah. band. I went Christian with it, yes. So, as a small group of seminarians in the village of Icone, Switzerland, with the permission of Bishop Francois Cherrier. I think they got that right. Yeah. Francois Cherrier of Freiburg. Excellent so pronunciations again. Not... Thank you. <laughs> so the Holy See did not approve, and Lefebvre was ordered to disband his society in 1975. So he completely ignored this order to disband like a Ooh, badass. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah, he's peace. I mean, SSPX. That's a cool yeah. acronym. I it mean, you gotta cool. be yeah. you gotta be badass. I want that on a patch, and I want it on a jacket, like a jean jacket immediately. <laughs> yeah, I'm jean jacket. <laughs> Dude, are you part of the SSPX? You fucking know it, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Lefebvre for life. (laughs) Like who? Lefebvre didn't stop there. In 1988, despite the expressed prohibition of Pope John Paul II, he consecrated four bishops to continue his work with the SSPX. Yeah. Man, didn't even So the Holy See... Yeah, and we'll go into, this is kind of just an overview, so I break this down a little later, but the Holy See um, countered this blatant disobedience by declaring that Lefebvre and other bishops participating in the ceremony were automatically excommunicated under Catholic canon law. So that's a status Lefebvre refused to acknowledge to his death just three years later. Yeah. Which is fucking punk rock, (laughs) except for less fun and no loud music company. Yeah, you can't. No guitars at all. (laughs) That's right. And this is going to be... This is a big deal for Seti Vacantis is this idea of having bishops because 
the thing that the Catholic Church kind of bases its authority on is that it's a it has a direct connection to the church as founded by Jesus. Right. So you've got the apostles, you've got Peter as the head of the church yeah. uh, founded by Jesus. And the idea is that bishops are the successors to the apostles. And so the reason the Catholic church matters, uh, according to them, is that they have this direct line. Mm-hmm. And so SETI Vacantists, they need to have bishops in their, in their favor in order mm-hmm. to kind of continue you know, this is a big deal for them because they want to continue the Catholic Church, but they can't do it through the regular organs. So they have to have access to these bishops, which is kind of part of what Lefebvre was trying to do here. Right. That's true. So, you know, there is a happy ending, though. 18 years after Lefebvre's death in 2009, Pope Benedict the twenty sixth lifted the ex. I believe that's 16. You're right. <laughs> Getting, whoa, we're in the future. <laughs> Benedict the twenty sixth. <laughs> Or maybe Benedict is just like slowly adding numbers. Like he's like, no one's looking. I'm just going to keep adding right. numbers. It turns out I was like 20 I mean, popes. Yeah, exactly. There's a bunch of fake popes in there. All right. Um, so Pope Benedict the 16th lifted the excommunication of the four surviving bishops at their request. So I don't know. What about the Deutherian bishops? What a lifeist. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, yeah. So the document goes on to say, quote, at the same time, I declare that as of today's date, the decree issued at that time no longer has juridical effect, thereby nullifying the excommunication pronounced on Lefebvre as well. Ha ha ha, though, jokes on you, Pope. That's in quotes, by the way. Yeah, because... big old quotes. Because <laughs> Lefebvre, you know, went to his grave not giving a fuck about your excommunication. So that's a waste of excommunication nullification. Yeah, I've he could have given one. that out to anybody. Yeah. You know, Lefebvre's just hanging out and I don't know where he is, just like, <laughs> as if. <laughs> So I'm going to go into Lefebvre's theological and political positions. Actually, more theological. Yeah, and this is a good intro in general to kind of set of a contest um, beliefs, even though Lefebvre himself wasn't a set of a contest, at least not initially. I'm not sure. He might have kind of it's leaned. kind of confusing, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah, but he, I mean, ultimately, he thought there was a pope. Yeah. And that who we think is the Pope is the Pope. Yeah. But he was definitely, that's kind of why I described him as the godfather. He kind of... He said the SSPX especially produced a lot of Seti Vacantists who kind of split off from them even. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a kind of good, his views are really the reasons a lot of people went all the way, so to speak. Yeah. Lefebvre belonged to an identifiable strand of right-wing political and religious opinion in French society that originated among the defeated royalists after the 1789 French Revolution. French Revolution is a big deal to Catholics. Yeah. That's kind of the beginning of what is referred to as modernity, which Mm -hmm. is kind of what a lot of these traditionalist Catholics, they think that the Catholic Church has been run over by modernity, which began with the French Revolution. It's like opposite punk rock, basically. Okay, Opposite punk rock. Which makes it punk rock in a yeah, way. In it's a it's way, weird yeah. how that works. It's the horseshoe <laughs> theory of punk rock. Lefebvre's political and theological outlook mirrored that of a significant number of conservative members of French society under the French Third Republic, which is 1870 to 1940. The Third Republic was reft with, with conflicts between the secular left and the Catholic right, with many individuals on both sides exposing distinctly radical positions. Again, horseshoe. Totally ridiculous, yeah. So this is a little bit <laughs> from the, I'm taking this from the wiki article about it. So a list of theological positions held by Lefebvre. So this is a few here. So the rejection of false or aberrant ecumenism, 
which is the uh, and and in favor of exclusivism. So ecumenism refers to efforts by Christians of different church traditions to develop closer relationships and better understandings. Exclusivism is the opposite of this. Yeah, the Catholic Church is the one true church. Yeah. And Protestants, even though they're going to church and doing their own thing, are heretics. Yeah. Kind of, you know, full stop. Right. The espousal of pragmatic religious tolerance instead of the principle of religious liberty. Ugh. Exactly. Gross. Yeah. So <laughs> the rejection it's like, of tolerate in the way that like I won't have your family killed right now. Like that's that's the tolerance, you know, because we might <laughs> yeah. get you to join us one day. So we'll let you live. <laughs> the rejection of collegiality within the church in favor of strict papal supremacy. Collegiality means the pope governing the church in collaboration with the bishops of local churches, respecting their proper autonomy. So papal supremacy refers to the pope knows best and the rest of the big hats can fuck off. I mean, I'm ad-libbing that, but that's Yeah, I think that's a good. Yeah. That's a good. Yeah. I mean, this also gets into uh a lot of people call the Novus Ordo or the Modernist Church, you know, the various kind of insults they have for the Catholic Church. They also talk about the conciliar church you know, in this kind of spirit of collegiality, this idea that the the Pope's, you know, important, but he's part of a system of cardinals, and it's not just the Pope, whatever the Pope says goes. Right. Opposition and the replacement to the Tridentine Mass with the Mass of Paul VI. The Tridentine Mass, also known as, and personally preferred by this podcast host, the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite. (laughs) It's all in caps and bolded. (laughs) Is the Roman Rite Mass, which appears in typical editions of the Roman Missal, published from 1570 to 1962. I mean, I, I, you know, unfortunately never had this as an employee book recommendation at Barnes and Noble. But yeah, you know, that you always... should have been, you should have been the kind of the Seti Vacantis like Splinter Cell at <laughs> Barnes and Noble, and just like recommended all this stuff that no one's going to read. Right. This also just a, a couple of things. The Tridentine Mass is named for the Council of Trent. Yeah. So this was, you know, 1570, that's the end of the Council of Trent. That's when they decided this is the Mass. This is also what when people refer to the traditional Latin Mass. Mm-hmm. This is what they're talking about. And if you want to have a lot of fun, go on YouTube and look it up. It's, it's you know, it's it's a cool thing to look up. But there's also Seti Vacantis videos comparing the Tridentine <laughs> yeah. Mass to the Mass of Paul VI, which is basically... <laughs> Just making fun of people who don't have money to pay for costumes and a lot of smoke. That seems to be the main point. Let's just say it's highly biased in the editing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point, too. Also, guitars just kill all the guitars. So the Mass of Paul VI is the most commonly used form of the Mass and used today within the Catholic Church. Still the same. First first propagated by... Pope Paul VI in 1969 edition of the Roman Missal after the Second Vatican Council. So it is considered the ordinary form of the Roman Rite Mass as it is intended for use in most contexts. It is a successor of the Tridentine Mass used since 1570, as we were talking about. Okay. Yeah, and I think this is um, ordinary form, so, you know, Christmas, you might do something different. Um, And this is really, I think in a lot of ways, this is one of the big sticking points for yeah. the set of a contest and the traditional Catholics is just, they get so mad <laughs> about this. <laughs> um, and so it's super important to kind of like, you know, get this distinction in here. Yes. And now for some fancy pants drama. Here we go. Ooh. And night. <laughs> Ooh. In 1967, Lefebvre had a short meeting with the Italian saint and mystic Padre Pio of Petrasina. 
to request his blessing on a forthcoming general chapter of the Holy Ghost Fathers. So a priest by the name of Pasco Cantillo, who claimed to be an associate of Padre Pio, said that the, that the Padre Pio had prophesied about Lefebvre. This was in the book. <laughs> this is a good book, too. Padre Pio Gleanings. Ooh, Gleanings. So, gleanings. <laughs> That's, so I'm going to, you know, the go get none dare call it ordinary Gleanings, <laughs> I think will be our first book. <laughs> and a quote from the book here. So Padre Pio looked at Lefebvre very sternly and said, quote, never cause discord among your brothers and always practice the rule of obedience. Above all, when it seems to you that the errors of those in authority are all the more serious. There is no other road than that of obedience, especially for those of us who have made this vow. It seems Archbishop Lefebvre did not see things in quite the same way, even if he did respond to pa- Padre Pio with, quote, I will remember that, Father, <laughs> so Padre Pio looked at him intensely and, and seeing what would soon happen said no you will forget it you will tear apart the community of your faithful oppose the will of your superiors and even go against the orders of the Pope himself and this will happen quite soon quite soon so, he was right <laughs> well anyway so apparently none of this ever happened according to oh. Lefebvre you know, according to him according to Lefebvre oh, uh, wow. he dismissed these allegations as slander quote slander a fabrication and he gave his own account of the event, as well as some photographic evidence, Ooh. you know, backing his counterclaim. But I mean, I personally prefer shroud evidence. Is there any way we can get this on a shroud? I would believe it better. Yeah, the shroud of Lefebvre. <laughs> That's what we need to really get the evidence going. So Lefebvre's explanation of the encounter was provided on August 8th, 1990, in reply in a personal letter to a society priest in France who had written to ask him about the meeting with Padre Pio. Here is some of this letter. For several years now, this slander, a fabrication form from start to finish, has been circulating in Italy. I have already refuted it, but lies die hard. There is not one word of truth in this page of that magazine you photocopied for me. The meeting, which took place after Easter in 1967, lasted two minutes. I was accompanied by F- Friar Barbara and Holy Ghost Brother, Brother Phelan. So Holy Ghost Brothers, Fathers, what's next? A Holy Ghost Sister? This is madness. Come on. Oh, that's that's modernity right there is the Holy Ghost Sister. I also <laughs> like how they had to photocopy him a magazine. You can't get him the original copy of the magazine? Yeah. It, a lot of this stuff slightly reminds me of the Russian investigation. I don't know what it is. Just these meetings. <laughs> no, don't... I didn't do it, and I don't see it. I wasn't there. I was there only one Photocopies <laughs> and documents and memos. I just... It's crazy. Oh, Lord. So continuing with the quote, I met Padre Pio in a corridor on his way to the confessional being helped by two capuchins. I told him in a few words the purpose of my visit for him to bless the congregation of the Holy Ghost, which was due to hold an extraordinary general, my chapter meeting, like all religious societies under the heading of a giornamento, which is updating, meeting, which I was afraid would lead to trouble. Then Padre Pio cried out, me bless an archbishop? No, no. It is you who should be blessing me. You blessing me? Eh? You blessing me? I don't think so. I bless you first, you motherfucker. Sorry, I went full joke. Just Pesci, because we're dealing with not... the Catholic Church doesn't mean you have to go into the Italian stereotypes <laughs> the good right away. Best. Right. In- instantly. So he bowed to receiving the blessing. I blessed him. He kissed my ring, and I continued on his way to the confessional. 
That was the whole of the meeting, no more, no less, to an event such as an account as you sent me the copy of calls for a satanic imagination and mendacity. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Strong language. (laughs) The author is a son of the father of lies. Whoa. Damn. Thank you for giving me the chance to tell once more the plain truth. So I don't know. We really need to bring back ring kissing too. And a satanic, I like ring kissing. I, know, I like it. I'm going to wear a lot of rings. People are going to kiss them. A satanic imagination also sounds intriguing. I'm not going to lie. So, you know. Yeah, satanic imagination. I just imagine lots yeah. of electric guitars again, you know, <laughs> lots of fire imagery. Yeah. It sounds pretty rad. It does. All right. And so, you know, we talked about the son of the father of lies. It turns out we're also the son of the father of lies. We thought we could get to SSPX really today, but we're going on too long. We're going to have to end it here. And so I'm just going to have to have Brent as a fellow son of the father of lies. What did you learn today? Like what was most interesting to you about Uh, all of this Catholic chicanery? I think it's just an interesting, the whole Vatican II thing's interesting. I didn't know a lot about it. The book was really good. Um, I haven't, I've read bits and pieces of it. Um, Lefebvre is very interesting. And actually, even in the next episode, we'll go into discussing his impact on the SSPX more too, which I can't wait to get into that. But yeah, this was the, the, like the background to the Vatican II was something that I learned and I really enjoyed. Um, how about yourself? So I agree definitely about Vatican II. I knew bits and pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really recommend that book, kind of what happened at Vatican II, uh, Harvard University Press. Um, I believe O'Malley is his name. We'll have that on a source page um, when we release the episode. Um, I just still, the thing that still gets me about all this is how initially kind of benign Vatican II seems yeah. compared to how it's treated by these more conservative traditional Catholics going all the way to the set of a contest. Right. Um, and how, man, they really care about this, the, the, the mass in a yeah. way that, you know, so again, like the mass I went to is the, um, it's the new, you know, is the new mass. Yeah. And it seems fine. Like there was a guitar. I like, and I, <laughs> when I saw that, I kind of died inside a little bit because knowing, <laughs> knowing some of the views on the use of guitar yeah. in the mass, and it just seems like this seems perfectly solemn and serious, and but people really don't like it. It really bothers people. Yeah, and in fact, like um, we were when we were talking about this earlier, <clears throat> we were looking up you know state of a contest churches or uh, yeah masses that you can go to, and and um, there's a few of my in uh, Vegas. I know I can go. I'm gonna have to yeah. try and check it out because I really do want to. And you probably want to go to one. There's some in Detroit, I'm sure. Yeah, there's there's plenty in Detroit, and yeah. there's also I think I'm gonna first I'm gonna dip my toe into because there are you know again like there are Catholic churches that have the traditional Roman Mass, and so mm. I'm gonna dip my toe in with that first, right? And then go to one of the set of Acontis churches that I found. Yeah, yeah, that would. But be yeah, just so much. I mean, we're gonna get. I mean, there is a lot here. There is a lot of work in the set of a contest, traditional Catholic world about these changes, which to me seems so benign. I think that's fundamentally what's most interesting to me. Yes. Same. It's how yeah. much work people are putting into, <laughs> you know, not liking guitars at mass. Like <laughs> fundamentally, that's what it seems like to me. 
And with that, we are done. Yes. So a couple of updates for the podcast. So first, it's 2019. It's the first podcast of the year. Feel real good about Woo! it. Um, we have some changes to the website. Um, we're actually making it useful to people who already listen to the podcast. So we're kind of using it as like a bulletin board service kind of, you know, we'll have, you know, small kind of one or two line updates just telling you, you know, when we're recording, all that kind of stuff. And we're also going to feature, for the first time, we're going to feature sources. We're actually going to give um, a list of sources so you can kind of go do, you know, research on your own. You can see, you know, where we're getting all our information from. And so that is nonedarecallitordinary.com. And also, you know, always send us an email. You know, do you like guitars in the mask? <laughs> Maybe you prefer a keytar? You know, that might be more solemn. I don't know. You can get a good synthesizer, there get a good be... organ sound. Yeah, some sort of organ mix with the guitar. Like, I don't yeah. Know, that would be. Or like a keytar where yeah. it's like gr- gr- uh, Gregorian chant, you know? <laughs> you know, get something like that going. I would love to see a solemn keytar mass. Yeah. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> if anyone can figure out how to do it, or if you already know. Yeah. So do you want the keytar mass? Let us know. Send us an email. <laughs> None dare call it ordinary Actually, at gmail.com. The keytar reminded me of the key flute, which is the guy from Colbert. What is his name? John Baptiste, who Colbert is Catholic. Maybe yes. we could work this out here. I'm seeing a key Ooh, flute in the, key in the flute. future. Of, yeah, the modernist. What is a key flute? It is a. It looks like a little bitty uh, a synthesizer that you put up to your mouth like a flute, and you're playing it. Oh, I know yeah, what that is. I've I, seen I guess those. I don't know if that's called a key flute. It just yeah, a key flute. And then a, at least we don't have to plug anything recorder, in. Actually, not a flute. You don't turn it. You don't turn key it to recorder. Side. Yeah, key something. We're key gonna something. get key yeah. something. What do you want? A key harp, a key lute, a key flute. Who knows? Send us an email. Nundarecalledordinary at gmail.com. And with that, we are done! Go to church!